All right, this evening we're going to look at the Annunciation <clears throat> to Zacharias and <clears throat> Elizabeth from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. <clears throat> but before we get into the structure of that unit, I want to go back to the macro structure, Inclusio, the whole gospel, which is tying up <clears throat> one loose end from last week's discussion. <clears throat> there is a macro structure, Inclusio, of location in this gospel. It's quite interesting to observe it, <clears throat> and you'll find it stretching from verse 9 of chapter 1 to verse 53 of chapter 24. So let's begin at the back. Let's look at the last verse of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, verse 53. And what location do you see noted there? We're in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem, okay? So back to verse 9 of chapter 1, the first narrative unit of the gospel is set in what location? In the temple in Jerusalem once again. All right, now, this is obviously an intentional bracket. That is, the evangelist Luke has positioned the location of the temple at the opening and closing of his gospel. And there's a great deal of activity in the temple, particularly in the so-called journey motif in Luke's gospel where Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9. And of course, in setting his face to Jerusalem, he's also setting his face toward the temple. We raise the question, why Luke does this? And my answer to that question is to suggest that he is indicating the passing away of the temple. That is, as the temple opens the gospel, the temple closes the gospel, and Jesus himself is closing the gospel, closing the temple by means of the gospel. In other words, the location of the action of God after the temple is not in Jerusalem per se, and it's not in a building made with brick and stone like a temple per se. It is in the body of Christ, which is outside the temple and in the church assembled throughout the world. Now, Luke will make that point more dramatically in his second book, namely the book of Acts. But here he is foreshadowing it by bracketing the, the gospel, the good news of Christ, with the temple location, as if to suggest that that gospel transcends that location. That gospel places that location in abeyance. In other words, it cancels it. It places the temple in the past history of redemption and annuls it. We don't go to temple anymore, and we never will, because the age of the temple is over. Jesus has put an end to it. The gospel has put an end to it. The gospel to the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, has put an end to a temple. <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> so with that note about the broader <clears throat> uh, scope of Luke's uh, narrative or literary approach here, let's take a look at the structure <clears throat> of the first narrative unit which is the Annunciation <clears throat> to Zacharias and Elizabeth that they will have a son. <clears throat> now, 
Now you will notice a symmetrical pattern here. I've arranged it as a chiasm, a symmetry of theme or a symmetry of theme in reversal. And that stands out in verse 7 where Elizabeth is described as being barren. And in verse 24, she is described as being pregnant. In other words, the reverse paradigm from barrenness to pregnancy signals the movement or the drama of this unit. The frame tells the theme, reversal by miraculous work of God. Now, the second pattern of symmetry here is in the priestly service of Zechariah in the temple. And we note in passing that the temple priests would serve the temple at various stages during the six months of the year in which all of them were to be in the temple. It's probable that Zechariah was part of an order, the order of Abijah, as it's indicated here, that served eight weeks into that semester, although we're not absolutely sure about that. The courses of the priests in the temple are noted in the Old Testament. It's a little bit difficult to to tack them down to the modern calendar. There are traditions about it. But nonetheless, this is the custom, and so that's what the background of the priestly service when his turn comes up is mentioned in verse 8. So his priestly service at his appropriate or appointed time begins in the 8th verse as he moves from his home to the temple. Where is his home? If you notice verse 23, he goes back to his home. But then you notice verse 39 his home in the hill country of the city of Judah, because that's where Mary's going to see Elizabeth. And once again, that home mentioned in verse 65, in the hill country of Judea. Now, this is an interesting phrase. In other words, Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in the hill country of Judah or Judea, as the text indicates. Where is that? It is west of Jerusalem. Exactly where west of Jerusalem, we're not told. Luke doesn't tell us. He says a city. He doesn't name the city. And so we're left scratching our heads. Or intrigued by why Luke doesn't give the city's name. Nonetheless, he gives the region. And since Mary goes there from Nazareth in the next unit, it is conceivable that it was close enough to Nazareth that she could get there easily or within at least one or two days' journey. Conceivable. But that's the only clue that I can provide. Nonetheless, the place from which he comes in verse 8 to begin his priestly service is in the hill country of Judah, west of Jerusalem, and he enters the temple in verse 8 to perform that service. Now, at the mirror opposite in verse 23, he ends his priestly service. Once again, he is in the temple at that point, and verse 23, as we've already indicated, suggests that he went back home to the hill country of Judah or Judea. Now, after he enters into the temple to engage in the priestly service, which is his role, and he's offering incense at the incense altar, which means he's inside 
the holy place, the outer room of the temple outside of the Holy of Holies. As he's performing his priestly service, the people, verse 10, are outside praying. The opposite or symmetrical element in verse 21, the people are outside waiting. While he is inside, they are praying at the beginning of his priestly service. And as his priestly service comes to an end, they are outside waiting for him to appear. But who appears? Well, inside, while Zechariah is performing the accustomed service, an angel appears. We do not know the name of the angel in verse 19, in, in, in verse 11. <clears throat> he is identified, first of all, by name in verse 19. But <clears throat> nonetheless, the angel appears, <clears throat> and then in verse 20, the angel disappears. He appears to dialogue or speak to Zechariah. He disappears after his last speech to Zechariah. And sandwiched in between, is that word people again, only now it is not the people on the outside praying or the people on the outside waiting. This is a people prepared for the Lord. A people prepared for the Lord by the voice of the harbinger or the forerunner of the one that should come. Now this for the Lord phrase is quite interesting. You will notice that it ties Lord in verse 17 to verse 16, the Lord their God. So that the suggestion is that Lord, for whom the people are being prepared, is the Lord their God, to whom they will be turned by the voice of John the Baptist. He's obviously not the Lord their God. He's turning them to the Lord, he's preparing them for the Lord, their God. And I am going to boldly suggest that this is Luke intimating that Jesus is God. This is an affirmation, subtle, but nonetheless implicit, that Jesus of Nazareth is the, the Son of God, in, in fact, God of God, second person of the Trinity. It's subtle, but you'll notice this, shall we say, pregnant sense of the term Lord here for which John the Baptist prepares the way. All right, now, the pattern of reversal as we mirror the symmetry down through this outline of this section, the pattern of reversal is to underscore the miraculous work of God making a dead and barren womb Alive, a dead and barren womb alive, life for the dead, life out of death, life instead of death. This miraculous and supernatural reversal of Elizabeth's condition is a reflection of the gospel age which brings life out of death. In fact, Jesus will bring life out of death. From the womb of a tomb, 
he will bring life out of death. Now, I don't want to uh, force that issue too seriously, but I want you to think more broadly about the pattern because there will be a number of life out of death motifs throughout this third gospel, and Luke is in a sense foreshadowing that as he talks about Elizabeth's barrenness. But there is more, as we shall see later on. All right, so there's a neat structure here. Uh, You've seen chiasms before. Here's another chiasm. The symmetry of this chiasm is that that every feature or every element of it is a mirror reversal, which underscores the reverse motif of the drama, namely the miraculous reversal of Elizabeth's sterile or barren condition. Now, that raises another interesting issue, that is the theophorics in this unit. Now, a theophoric... And break that word apart. It's compound Greek word, theos, which means God, and phores or form, which means form or mold or manner of being. The name of God in the form of a name, or God's name in the form of a human name, or incorporated into a human name. And there are a number of those theophorics in this unit. In fact, most of the names in this unit are theophorics. And we begin with the first name that we encounter, namely Zacharias or Zachariah or spelled Z-E, Zachariah. Either spelling is acceptable and the A-S or A-H ending is acceptable. The A-S is actually the literal Greek ending. So anyway, it's translated or spelled is acceptable. What does Zacharias mean? Well, if it's a theophoric, the name of God is in there. And it's at the end. It's in the I-A-H, which is the short form of Yah or Yahweh. So Zechariah means Zakar Yahweh. And the Greek or the Hebrew word Zakar means to remember. So Zechariah Yahweh has remembered. So the first personality that we meet in Luke's gospel has God in his name. Hmm. The second name that we meet is Abijah. Now there again you see the Yah or the J-A-H, which means Yahweh. <clears throat> Abai or Avi in Hebrew would mean my father. So Yahweh is my father. Abijah or Avijah. Another theophoric, we meet God in the priestly division or the course or order of Abijah. Verse 5 also includes the name Elizabeth, or in Greek, Elizabetha, which is in the Septuagint how her name is translated from the Hebrew Elishaba. Elishaba. Spelled E L I S H E B A, pronounced in Hebrew style Elishaba. Now that Hebrew is in Exodus chapter six, verse twenty-three, and in that verse we find that Elishaba was the wife of Aaron, 
brother of Moses. Elizabeth, or Elisheba, here, is of the order or the daughters of Aaron. So she traces her lineage back to Aaron, even as the wife of Aaron, Elisheba, is part of that Levitical order. Which means that husband and wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are of the priestly line. Husband and wife together are descendants of the line of Aaron. So it's not just the husband here, Zechariah, it's the husband and wife, tandem, both of them, from the Levitical line of the house of Aaron. Now, what does her name mean? We'd have to use the Hebrew, Elisheba. There's see the E-L-I, which means my God in Hebrew, El, with the uh, <coughs> suffix personal pronoun on the end of it, the I. My God is fullness, perhaps. It's difficult to sort this one out. There's a great deal of debate about what the Hebrew word Elisheva may mean, but we'll suggest my God is fullness, which would reflect, in this case, the fullness of Elizabeth's joy when she learns that she's going to have a son. Now, verse 19 gives us the name of the angel, Gabriel, even though he appears in verse 11 before he's named. Gabriel, you can see the the theophoric in the L, God. Well, what's Geber or Gabor? It can mean a strong man, it can mean a warrior, can mean a powerful person. So Gabriel may mean God is my warrior, or it could mean God is my power, God is my strength, God is my might. Last year we were dealing with the book of Lamentations, and that Hebrew word Geber or Gibor appears a number of times in Lamentations. In fact, the man who suffers affliction is called Geber, which means a mighty, possibly means a mighty or strong man. So it is a common Hebrew word. Gabriel, God is my might. The next name is in verse 13. And that is the instruction by Gabriel that Elizabeth is to call the son that she will conceive and bear, John. Now, John is a shortened version of the Hebrew word Yohanan. And once again, you can see the name for God in the first three letters, Yo, or Yahweh, and Anan, God has shown favor, or Yahweh is gracious. So the name John, which would pick up the Hebrew, Yohanan, indicates God's grace and favor. And that leaves the name Elijah in verse 17. And like Abijah, up above, you see the Yah at the end, the name for Yahweh. 
And El is also a name for God, so El with the I attached to it as a suffix, personal pronoun, first person personal pronoun in Hebrew, my God is Yahweh, Aliyah or Elijah. So out of the characters named here in this opening narrative or literary unit of the gospel, there is an emphatic emphasis upon theophoric names. He names them in order to underscore that God is in the drama. The true God, the true God who has revealed himself to Israel, is revealing himself anew. He has revealed himself in time past to the Old Testament fathers. He's revealing himself anew to these individuals And Luke is underscoring the significance of that by including their theophoric names. In other words, we can't read about these characters without thinking about Yah or El, God. Why? Why does he name them? Why does he make an emphasis of it? He could have just described as a man and a woman, etc. He didn't need to give any personal names. The angel isn't named in the first time. He could still been an angel in verse 19. Why? Why does he do this? This is a machine gun staccato of divine theophoric names, people carrying God's name around with them. Why? Well, don't you ask questions like that. Oh, okay. Well, I'll ask them for you. Now, revealing himself in the fullness of time In his son, he perhaps, Luke does, perhaps wants to underscore, even by way of anticipation in this opening unit, under the theophoric guise, he wants to underscore his preface, his preference, I should say, for the phrase kingdom of God. Now, we mentioned this last week. We want to think about the fact that Luke never uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. He always uses the phrase kingdom of God. It is that which Jesus proclaims. He comes proclaiming the kingdom of God. Matthew and Mark, kingdom of heaven. Luke, kingdom of God. But he begins with all these people that have God in their names. Ah, is there a connection? Is he trying to suggest something by setting you up for thinking about God and the names of these characters that when Jesus comes talking about the kingdom of God, you won't be quite surprised? Perhaps. Or is it the antithesis that he's setting up? Is it the antithesis that he's setting up between the people that bear the name of God and the kingdoms of this world that are not the kingdom of God? The kingdom of Herod the Great, the butcher. The kingdom of Caesar Augustus, the imperial butcher. The kingdom of the imperiums and principalities and powers of this world that have nothing to do with God. But Jesus brings the antithesis to those kingdoms, those depraved and brutal kingdoms. He brings the kingdom of God. Is that what Luke is beginning to suggest or attempting to suggest even with these three or four theophorics. This gospel narrative is a very different story from the secular Greco-Roman stories of the first century, and we pointed that out when we looked at the prologue in the first four verses. 
But this story is timeless. This story is as timeless as the eternal heavenly kingdom out of which its chief actors and personalities live. Even Zechariah, Elisheva, Gabriel, Abijah, Elijah, Yohanan. They live out of a different kind of kingdom. Not a kingdom of Judea, Herod the Great. Not a kingdom of Rome, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Caesar. Not a kingdom of this world, but a kingdom eternal and transcendent as God transcendent himself. And they are actors and have their personalities shaped and formed by that kingdom because they have been brought into it by the marvelous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through God the Father by the power and operation of the Holy Spirit. Is that what Luke is suggesting here with this staccato of theophoric names? Here is life in this story, says Luke. Here is life in the kingdom of eternal life, in the story of God's kingdom, the eternal kingdom of the eternal God through his eternal Son and the eternal Spirit. Because all three persons of the Godhead are going to be very active and present in this gospel. They are either even implicitly present in this first unit. All right, well, whether we're right or wrong about that, we note one of these characteristics of Luke's style. He uses the theophoric to a fault, and he talks about the coming of the kingdom of God. Its presence, its advent, its intrusion, its eruption, its breaking into history with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we want to look a little more in detail at the characterization pattern in verses 5 to 7. So we note, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, that is the first characterization unit of Luke's gospel. It is the first literary form in which he tries to characterize the actors in the drama. What's he doing? Well, he's obviously telling the truth about the facts of the situation. This is the historical condition of Zacharias and Elizabeth, but he is characterizing these two as he characterizes the Israel that then was. The Israel that then was. The initial Lucan characters double as characterization paradigms, a paradigm of the old Israel. The old Israel, barren and sterile, as barren and sterile Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, I want to elaborate on that point as we go further this evening, but I'm going to leave it there for the time being. 
Now we turn our attention to what most commentators do with this unit. They take this pattern of an old man and wife, childless in old age and barren. They take this pattern as rooted in and, in fact, a reprise of the patriarchal paradigm. What Luke has done is he's replayed the patriarchal paradigm, or whoever Luke is, or whoever the writer of this unit is. These commentators regard the events of the patriarchal era as parallel to the circumstances of Elizabeth and Zechariah, barren wife, aged husband. Some of these commentators even make the pattern of the patriarchal wives and husbands the explanation or the inspiration for fabricating. Fabricating, that is, inventing this pattern, this duplicate pattern in Elizabeth and her husband Zacharias. In other words, they've invented a myth based upon another myth. They're using the myth of the patriarchal barrenness and sterility, and so they're fitting in the barrenness and sterility of Elizabeth and Zechariah. These learned commentators argue that the New Testament writer has completely invented the notion of a patriarchal narrative so that he can capture the attention of his Jewish or Old Testament aware audience and get an ear or get an eye to legitimize the connections that he wants to make between the patriarchal account or the patriarchal narrative and the gospel story. It's all contrived, you see. It's all insidiously or brilliantly, whichever word you want to use, I would say nefariously, contrived. But this is what you read in these learned commentaries. Well, let's take it on. If this be so, and I am most emphatic that it is not so, but if this be so then the writer or inventor or fabricator of Luke's narrative has certainly erred. To connect the patriarchal pattern of miraculous fertility in Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel with their respective aged husbands, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to connect that patriarchal narrative of sterility and old age to Elizabeth and Zechariah is a major blunder. A major blunder. Why is it a glaring mistake? Why is it a dumb blunder? And that's what it is. It's dumb. It's stupid. And I'll say it again. It's stupid dumb. Why? Because... The fruit of Zechariah and Elizabeth's conception is John the Baptist, not Jesus Christ. The fruit of Elizabeth and Zechariah is not Jesus Christ. It is John the Baptist. 
the barren couple here do not generate the seed promised to patriarch Abraham, patriarch Isaac, and patriarch Jacob and their respective wives. How do you make a mistake like this? Well, because you've got a theory. You're laying over the narrative, you see, and it's got to fit. And you get to sell lots of commentators with commentaries with arguments like this. People say, wowie zowie. Without realizing that you're dead wrong. The three patriarchs are divinely informed through the patriarchal covenant of grace that their seed, a child from their loins, and from the wombs of their wives, that their seed will be a blessing, a savior to the nations, a blessing to people of all nations of the earth, as the apostle Paul confirms in Galatians 3.8. The patriarchs are going to give rise to a seed which is going to lead to a savior. Is John the Baptist the savior? I don't think so. Paul also goes on to tell us in the third chapter of Galatians that the salvific blessing from Abraham and the other patriarchs is that their seed, their seed is Christ. Galatians 3.16. Don't these learned commentaries read Galatians? Don't they understand Paul's argument? Now, that seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob arrives not from a barren couple, but from a virgin woman. They can't even compare apples with apples. It's not from a barren old lady. It's from a young virgin. Duh! Oh, don't bother me with details. The seed does not come from conjugal intercourse, but a husband between a husband and a wife, it arrives from a womb stimulated by no man and no husband. Rather, it comes from a womb miraculously made alive with a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. It comes from the womb of a virgin. Completely non parallel, completely unparalleled miraculous event in the whole history of the world. There are no symmetrical echoes of the patriarchal narratives of barrenness succeeded by fertility here in Luke 1, 5 to 25, at least not in terms of the fruition of the patriarchal hopes and patriarchal promises in the seed. Because again, John the Baptist, son of a barren couple, made fecund, is not the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promised as the light and life to the nations, Gentile as well as Jew. Jesus Christ is the fruition of those patriarchal hopes and promises 
as the inspired Apostle Paul informs us. And I'll ask you to note also the inspired Apostle Peter in his sermon at the temple in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3, verse 25. It is Christ's conception which is Luke's primary and central focus. And Christ's conception does not occur in Elizabeth and Zechariah. Christ's conception is tied to redemptive history, to protological redemptive history, as Luke 3.38 indicates. What does Luke 3.38 indicate? The genealogy of Christ, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. In Luke 3.38, the eschatological history of redemption reprises the protological history of redemption. Jesus, second and last Adam. Jesus, second and last Adam, is a son of God as the original first Adam was. But, but, with Luke's non parial pattern, Jesus' eschatological Adam is ontological son of God. Ha-Adam, ha-Adam, protological Adam is adopted son of God by creation. Protological Adam and eschatological Adam parallel, but also unparalleled. Jesus is conceived a child without a human father. A miraculous creation in a womb of an intact virgin. His miraculous origin brings to mind a woman generated without a human father. A miraculous creation from another human. The first creation, the protological creation, the old creation of Adam and Eve features a miracle of new life without a human instrument. The miracle of new life without a human instrument. The second creation, eschatological creation, the new creation of Jesus from Mary records a miracle of new life without a human instrument. Without a human instrument. Note bene. I am paralleling the human natures in each case. I am not dismissing the divine and ontological nature of Jesus Christ united to his human nature, which human nature was created from the flesh of a virgin. Divine and human natures are joined from conception in Christ. The parallel in the barrenness then is not derived from or a reprise of the patriarchal narrative. The parallel in miraculous origin is in the Adamic narrative. And that's the reason Luke, in chapter 3, verse 38, goes all the way back to the protological beginning. He goes all the way back to Adam, and he calls Adam a son of God. A son of God by creation, not a son of God by ontological generation. True? 
Matthew's genealogy in his first chapter may originate with the patriarchal narrative. The point there is that Jesus is the protological it goes back to the protological Israel because he's the eschatological Israel. Matthew begins with Abraham in order to underscore the fact that Jesus is the eschatological son of Abraham and the last Hebrew, the last Jew. But Luke goes beyond Matthew. He goes beyond the patriarchal narrative to the Adamic story. He goes beyond to the eschatological paradigm of an eschatological man, an eschatological son, the son of a womb miraculously begun, now brought forth miraculously from the womb of a daughter of Eve. For note this, as Eve was to Adam the first, so Mary is to Adam the last. Eve and Mary the bearers of the eschatological seed who will bruise the head of the serpent. Luke's genius in going beyond the patriarchal narrative is the genius of tying his beginning all the way back to the beginning. This eschatological new beginning goes all the way back to the protological beginning. Did he learn it from Paul? Sitting at Paul's feet, as Paul was writing 1 Corinthians and talking about the Adam Protos and the Adam Eschatos, the protological Adam and the eschatological Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. Is that where he got it? Hmm. And I'll leave you to chew that over as you take your break and get something to chew on. Now, I have indicated what is not appropriate by the patriarchal paradigm. Now, I need to say what is appropriate about the patriarchal paradigm, though it is not the background to this barrenness motif in Luke chapter 1. However, having talked about that pattern, let me make some comments as if I were talking about the Old Testament patriarchs in regard to this issue of the promised seed. I want to expand a little bit upon that. So I don't leave you simply chewing your teeth about the liberals who do strange things with the Bible. Now, in the structure that we had on the front page of the handout, we emphasized the reverse paradigm from barren to pregnant fruitfulness in Elizabeth. That reverse pattern is consistent with the Old Testament pattern of God's action in which by that reverse pattern, he signals a new or further enriched era of his saving grace. In fact, he marks out his saving grace as an omnipotent action, omnipotent meaning almighty supernaturalism, and an omniscient invention, intervention rather. 
because he's revealing himself into the drama of the historical characters. The supernatural intrusion, that is the act of God, and the supernatural revelation, that is the disclosure of God, are changes which occur in the Old Testament pattern by reversals. Reversals. How so? God acts by his omnipotent power and his omniscient revelation to bring about something new. Some additional new thing. Something breaking forth in the way of organic fullness and in the way of unfolding lavish riches. In other words, as we go along the line of Revelation, from Genesis to Malachi, we are along the line of God doing things in a new way as he unfolds the organic concept of his redemptive historical plan. He is adding new light. He is adding new events. He is adding new miraculous power. He is adding new supernatural revelation and omnipotent intervention. So how does he do that? In the patriarchal period. It is the pattern then of the old Abraham and old barren Sarah that by miraculous divine omnipotence, supernatural omnipotence, surely an undeserved and gracious act of God. If there's a supernatural omnipotent act, it's not because anybody earned it or deserved it. This pattern of a miraculous divine omnipotence and the fullness of the new line of the promise. A supernatural omnipotent act and the fullness of that act come to expression in a new line of the promise. Supernatural act, a dead womb of Sarah is made alive miraculously. Supernatural revelation a new rich description of the promise of the seed comes in the name or the birth of Isaac. It is not Ishmael. That's the old line. That's the line of death. The new line. The new line of life is the line of Isaac. And the riches of that revelation are added to the supernatural Conception, The child Isaac, this son, this beloved son, Isaac, the only son whom his father has not withheld even from the altar of burnt sacrifice. There is new and lavish riches being displayed out of the supernatural or omnipotent act of the conception of Isaac in the womb of Sarah. Again, the new Old Testament era unfolded in barren Rebekah's womb. Now, by divine and supernatural power, a miraculous creation of life in that barren womb, the fullness, the fullness of something richly new, Twins. She is carrying twins. But behold the riches of God's most treasured gift. 
His electing grace, Jacob, have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The supernatural act of giving life to that womb and the fullness of that womb in carrying twins, one of whom is the recipient of God's richest treasure, election unto eternal life, the other of whom is passed by in God's just reprobation. And the theophanies, the Christophanies of Revelation, the riches of this explosion of new revelations, new disclosures, new self-disclosures of God at Bethel's ladder for elect Jacob, at Peniel's crossroads for elect Jacob, a precious and stupendous face-to-face meeting with God transcendent at Peniel and the Son of God descendant. Now, there are lavish treasures of what is new in the history of redemption when Jacob encounters God at the top of that ladder and he encounters the Son of God at that crossroads at Peniel. And no longer is he called Jacob. No longer is he called a cheater and a deceiver and a trickster. No longer is his name Jacob. Now your name, you have wrestled with the Son of God. Now your name is Israel. Israel. But there is yet a further demonstration of the wonderful new thing God has planned in the history of the redemption of his people. Rachel's barren womb. There's the barren womb motif again. The old, as good as dead, barren womb. That old barren womb is alive. It is alive with her firstborn son named Yosef. Joseph. Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. Joseph, whose narrative in Genesis is an explosion. Joseph, whose narrative in Genesis is an explosion of divine and omniscient revelation to and in a son who was hated by his own brothers. An explosion of revelation to and in a son who was betrayed for 20 pieces of silver. An explosion of a revelation of a son who was turned over to bondage and slavery and imprisonment to suffer. To suffer solely and only because he bore God's revelation in himself. And all this, all this in Joseph, so that the riches of God's grace in preserving And saving his people from death. Saving his people from death with life. Even via descent into Egypt. A son of the promise goes down into Egypt. Will that replay? Will that replay in Matthew's narrative? 
Uh, when Jesus goes down into Egypt. With the reversal in Elizabeth and Zechariah, from barrenness to fruitfulness, another new age is about to dawn, and this eruption of rich, lavish, new revelation is about to sound forth from heaven's spokesman and heaven's angelic choir. Barren Israel. Old, barren Israel is about to spring forth with something new. New life. Life from the dead. Sterile Israel. Old, sterile Israel is about to hear, about to feel, about to show the riches of revelation hidden from the ages. Riches of grace. Treasures of supernatural intervention. Copious disclosures of undeserved love, mercy, and grace from God for his poor, barren, sterile, his old, stagnant people. His old, barren people who are about to be drawn into the new age of the Father, the age of the beloved Son of the Father, the age of the indwelling Holy Spirit of the Father and the Son. This new age of the abundance, the superabundance, the pregnant fullness of grace upon grace has come. That old age, that old age in which even righteousness in the sight of God outwardly as it is, does not suffice. That old age when even walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord outwardly does not suffice. No. That personal performance of the law and the commandments outwardly is old and barren and sterile. And it must be transformed. It must be regenerated. It must be reborn by the omnipotent and supernatural grace of God, a grace which shows itself in life from the dead. A grace which speaks in terms of angelic revelations and declarations of the voice of God out of heaven. And yes, a grace which speaks as very God in true man. Obedience or walking in the light of these voices, is the ethos of this new age of the will of God the Father by His Son, Jesus Christ, through the indwelling operation of the Holy Spirit. A new era. A new era of supernatural fruitfulness is upon us in Luke 1, 5 and following. Wombs full of life, wombs full of life, life which bears the indelible stamp of the supernatural, 
God making alive the dead womb. God making fruitful the virgin womb. God bringing new life to the history of redemption in the days of Herod the king and Caesar Augustus. New life. New revelations. New fulfillments of the history of redemption. Barren and sterile is past. Fecund and fruitful has come by the supernatural power and grace of God who declares, Behold, I make all things new now. Now. That is the real patriarchal paradigm that comes to expression here behind the Gospel of Luke. Not an invention, not a fabrication, not a myth, but a pattern of seeing the recurrent theme of God adding new acts of supernatural grace and new revelations of his unfolding and organic redemptive historical purpose. Come to its fullness here in dead wombs and in a womb without a human father. Right, that leaves the Elijah pattern. Your outline contains just a couple of notes for orienting us to the significance of verse 17, that John the Baptist reprises the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah. First of all, this verse quotes Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. In the context of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. In that last verse of the Old Testament, in that last book of the Old Testament, the last book of the prophets of Israel, the last writing prophet of the former era, projects in his final words the return of the fiery prophet who inaugurates the Old Testament age of the prophets. The last words of the prophets of old reprise the former words of the fiery prophet who inaugurated that age of the prophets. Which is to say that the prophet Elijah bookends the prophetic era of revelation in the Old Testament. The prophet Elijah is the bookends to the prophetic era of revelation in the Old Testament. Ninth century B.C. to 5th century B.C. Ninth century, 800s B.C. to 5th century, 400s B.C. Elijah bookends them. Elijah, who kicks off the age of the prophets 
returns prospectively in the very last book of the age of Old Testament prophecy. Or to put it yet another way, the protological Elijah appears in the 9th century B.C. days of wicked King Ahab and his evil queen Jezebel. Malachi 4.6 projects an eschatological Elijah who will reprise the message of this original prothological Elijah, which was repentance and faith in the Lord. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Protological Elijah returns in the eschatological Elijah. But, but does this mean that the eschatological Elijah is a literal, physical return of the protological Elijah? Remember, the protological Elijah was raptured to heaven in a fiery, fiery chariot with fiery, fiery horses. And he went by a whirlwind to heaven. Thank you, Felix Mendelssohn. And perhaps the greatest oratorio of all, the Elijah. Does Malachi mean that the glorified Elijah transformed from earth to heaven without physical death? Does Malachi mean that the glorified Elijah will literally return and descend to the earth and preach repentance and faith in the Lord? Does he? Well, in fact, many Jews of the first century thought so. They even supposed that Jesus was Elijah come back from heaven. In this Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 18, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do the multitudes say that I am? And his disciples answered in verse 19, Some say you are Elijah. Elijah redivivus, which in Latin means Elijah brought back to life on earth. But you will notice that Gabriel in verse 17 of this first chapter explains the meaning of Malachi's prophecy. Not a crass superstition of Elijah descending from heaven to resume his fiery prophetic career on earth. No. No, notice the phrase. The spirit and power of Elijah will be reprised in the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. The eschatological Elijah of Malachi 4, 5 to 6 will be John the Baptist. He will not be the reincarnation of the literal Old Testament prophet. But he will have the same fiery spirit with the same powerful message. Repent and believe. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. I baptize you in water. But the coming one will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Who taketh away the sin of the world. 
what is recapitulated in the return of the spirit and power of the protological Elijah is not his literal physical appearance on earth. John the Baptist said, I am not Elijah in that sense, John 1.21. Jesus himself said, John the Baptist was Elijah in the sense of Luke 1.17, Matthew 11.14. He, said Jesus, John the Baptist is Elijah who was to come. To come in the spirit and power of the Elijah of old. What is recapitulated in the return of the spirit and power of Elijah is the transition. The transition from one age in the history of redemption to another. That's the key here. It's not a literal coming of Elijah down out of the sky. That Jewish superstition is nonsense. As the protological Elijah of the 9th century B.C., signaled the transition from the age of the law to the age of the prophets, from Moses to Elijah. So the eschatological Elijah signals the transition from the age of the law and the prophets to the age of the gospel. It is the mark of transition. It is not a literal reappearance or reincarnation. This Elijah, this eschatological Elijah, John the Baptist, prepares the way for the final age in the history of redemption. The age of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God through God's own personal king, who is at once God's very own ontological son. The eschatological Elijah signals the end of the old and the dawn of the new. The end of the age of Moses and Elijah, the beginning of the age of the Christ, the eternal son, eternally begotten, only begotten, beloved son of the eternal father, who will give his life as a ransoming lamb of God for the salvation of the world, Jew and Gentile. Now there is a new age. There is a transition to the age to come. There is a new era. There is a new beginning indeed in the history of redemption. Zechariah and Elizabeth are granted the child, the boy, the man who will make ready for the breaking in of this new and glorious age of the Son of Man, Son of God. It is the transition of the ages that is being signaled here by the appearance of the eschatological Elijah. And please note, that is why, that is why Moses and Elijah appear with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is that which is being signaled gloriously. The glorified Moses and the glorified Elijah. The law and the prophets. Huh? The law and the prophets appear with the about-to-be-glorified Christ, the about-to-be-glorified Christ who appears 
in his glory radiance, his glory radiance surpassing them both. The age of the gospel of Christ more radiant, more glorious, more richly abundant than the age of the law and the age of the prophets because Christ, the Son of God, is greater than Moses. Christ, the Son of God, is greater than Elijah. For Christ, the Son of God, is God. Very God of very God and Savior of Moses, Savior of Elijah, and Savior of you and me. And every believer in every age of the history of redemption from the age of Moses and the law to the age of Elijah and the prophets to this present age of Christ and the blessed gospel of salvation, repentance, and faith. It is the mark of transition. greater than Moses is here. The greater than Elijah is here. The greater than the law and the prophets is here because he's the source of both of them. And as Luke 24:44 indicates, both of them, all of them, are about him. Elijah has come. The eschatological Elijah has come. But greater than the spirit and power of the eschatological Elijah is the eschatological prophet. The last and great prophet in the history of redemption is not Elijah, whom the Jews superstitiously adore. The one who sums up and fulfills all prophecy and all the Mosaic law too. The one, that one is the eschatological law giver and the eschatological law keeper, even as he is the eschatological prophet in whom all prophecy is now yea and amen. All prophecy finished, completed, accomplished, all prophecy recorded, inspired, written, inscripturated. There, there is the portrait of the kingdom of God between the bookends. Between the bookends of the law and the prophets and the gospels. There, between those bookends, we, we would see Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, we would see Jesus. And if you're not getting it, you're being robbed. If you're not hearing it, you're being cheated. If you're not getting it, it's because they can't find it. And if they can't find it, it's because they're not working hard enough. Because Jesus tells you in Luke 24, he's there. So go do your job and put him there before your people. Stop this business of moralizing, reducing, and telling stories. Enough. Give me Christ and the riches of Christ Jesus all the way through the bookends of this recorded revelation because that's what it's for. We would see Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 
because in seeing Jesus, we belong to the kingdom of God. In seeing Jesus, we possess the kingdom of God. In seeing Jesus, we possess him who is the son of the father, rejected by his brethren, sold for 30 pieces of silver, bound and whipped and imprisoned, scourged and crucified and rejected. We would see Jesus alive from the dead. Let us pray. We are amazed at the inspiring power of the gospel of Christ, Lord. So many riches in these pages, even riches that escape us. But for those treasures which are clearly revealed here, we praise and bless your name because we would see Jesus in and through it all. And in seeing him, through the grace of your supernaturally regenerating power, in seeing him, we would see life and not death. we would see eternal life and not eternal death. We would see the sun and we would kiss in our affection and adoration and hold fast to him as he holds fast to us with his life and not death. We thank you in the name of the eschatological Adam, your son. Amen.